Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi guys, my name is Zach Twomley and you are listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks for joining us on another installment of Britain Goes to War. First things first, I would just like to announce that, yes, I am engaged. I am super, super happy, still in shock, and myself and Mrs. WDF are extremely excited to spend the rest of our lives together. So thanks for all your congratulations and well wishes and donations. I really, really appreciate all of that. And it's nice in a way to share this next stage of my life, just like I've been sharing my professional life as well. Because I feel you guys are my friends in some way at least, at least insofar as that you care about what's going on in my life. So yeah, there you go. I'm not going to keep you guys too long, but of course the usual reminders have to be said. When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and this month we are promoting A History of England. So go and check out David Crowther's A History of England, if somehow you're still unaware of it. Additionally, Zach is going to Cambridge, so please continue your support for that venture, and I'll be sure to keep you updated. All the donations and well wishes of support and even just kind words have all been really, really appreciated so far. So please keep them coming because part of me thinks I can't do this without you. And another part of me thinks I wouldn't have got this far if not for you. So yeah, keep keep your support coming because it's super appreciated. Right, so let's get this started. I will now take you to the year, well, 1878, but roughly February or so. Thanks for listening. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 22. Lord Darby would have known full well that he was on borrowed time. Though the past month had been a disorganised mess where the pro-war party had been concerned, and though he had resigned only to be hurriedly accepted back into his old post as Foreign Secretary, Darby could sense that the winds of Conservative Party thought and practice simply were not with him by mid-February 1878. The issue remained whether or not to send up the British Navy through the Dardanelles to demonstrate to the Russians how important Constantinople was to the British Empire. This was the issue that Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli's cabinet had fought over for the past few months. 
and it continued to be one which Darby was wholly opposed to under the present circumstances. Darby barely recognised his Conservative Party anymore. Now they seemed consumed by reactionary plans and ideals, completely out of sync with what Darby saw as the Conservative Party line. It was a struggle which had worn on him ever since the wretched crisis in the East had begun, and ever since Russia had saw fit to declare war on the Ottomans. He had hung on by his fingernails for the past few weeks, but as his allies slipped away and as the press and public became increasingly belligerent and against him, Darby felt more and more isolated. Added to Darby's sense of isolation was the fact that Lord Salisbury, for so long a fellow Conservative ally and possessor of a calm head in the difficult proceedings, seemed to have adopted Disraeli's line as his own, and seemed to have adopted Darby's chair beside the Prime Minister in the process. Darby had been replaced by a younger, more bearded and more ambitious version of himself. It did not bode well for the future of the party. Darby shuddered to think how large the war party had grown in the last year or two. He decided to meet Disraeli in person on the 11th of February, one of their first face-to-face meetings, since the Prime Minister had been forced to backtrack and allow Darby back into the party. Disraeli had lost a battle in that instance, but he had since been reinvigorated by Salisbury's defection and by the apparent changing of the public mood to favour the stiff line of policy that Disraeli had for so long advocated himself. The British public had come close to revulsion following the rumours and panic of early February, and it was still on edge and apparently susceptible enough to favour war if another bit of bad news came from the Russian theatre. Now the news was that the Turkish Sultan feared the results of allowing the British to come up the Dardanelles, since this would jeopardise the very real peace talks going on between the Ottomans and Russians. This made sense, yet to many in the Conservative Party and to some defiant organs and segments of the public mood, the Russians were bullying the Turks into not allowing the British to exercise their rights in the region to protect their own subjects in Constantinople with their fleet. You can see how the situation could be painted either way. Another element of urgency added to the chaos, because already the British fleet had been forced to withdraw a number of times, and because of cabinet divisions at home earlier in the year, This had produced a shaky confidence in British prestige in the region. If the Royal Navy once again withdrew, it was said, then Britain would be again seen to have made a cowardly exit, and her power would dip notably in the eyes of her rivals. On the 11th of February, soon after news of the Turkish Sultan's opposition was learnt of, Salisbury wrote to Disraeli claiming that events had reached a critical moment, and that if the fleet did not go through the Dardanelles Straits, Our position would be utterly ridiculous. We shall disgust our friends in this country and lose all weight in Europe. Later on that day, when the meeting between Disraeli and Darby took place, it was clear that, if anything, both men had become even more determined to follow their own course, and that their own positions had become crystallised thanks to the weeks of intrigue and tension. Darby would have found it harder to compromise with his old friend, since he knew full well that the Prime Minister had tried very hard to get rid of him from the party, so that Disraeli and the pro-war camp could have an easier time of it. Darby had put on an air of professionalism, but it was hard to not feel somewhat slighted after having spent years together with Disraeli as friends. The old arguments were once again repeated. Darby accepted that a Russian occupation of Constantinople would mean that anti-Russian feeling here will go beyond all control but he remained convinced that sending up the fleet would actually produce this very eventuality which Disraeli claimed to fear. 
Disraeli, for his part, claimed that although the preceding war would last three years, it would still be a glorious and successful one for England. Darby then showed to the Prime Minister his trump card, a telegram from Russian Ambassador Shuvalov claiming that Russia would not advance to Constantinople unless provoked, a message signed by Tsar Alexander II himself. With this telegram, Darby should have been able to prove that the smear campaign against him, a campaign which included claims that his contact Shuvalov did not speak for the Russian government, was not based on sound facts. Yet Disraeli dismissed this telegram and instead reasoned that he would have to, as Prime Minister, debate the contents of the telegram and the next course in British policy during a cabinet meeting later that day. Darby was surely a bit ticked off at this, but must have been hopeful that he could get his colleagues to see sense. As Turkish and Russian officials continued to negotiate their peace, British officials negotiated with each other. Darby worked hard to get his colleagues to see that the Russians did not want war, and that if the British did barge up the Dardanelles, it would be they, not the Russians, who would be seen by the world as the aggressors. The war was, Darby hoped, soon to be at an end with the negotiating of a peace treaty. It did not make sense to jeopardise such possibilities for peace now, based on the unfounded fear that, if she did not do something, British prestige would drop. That evening, a compromise of sorts was reached. The British fleet would still be ordered up the straits, but first, the British ambassador in Constantinople would be given time to negotiate with the Turks and gain the Sultan's permission for the move. The hope being that if the Turks okayed the move, then the Russians would not feel confident standing against both powers merely because the British fleet was suddenly visible. It was certainly a gamble, though, in any case. Russian officials had already made it clear, as had Shuvalov, that the advance of the British fleet would make matters worse and could force Russia's hand if she took offence. If she took offence was the one ray of sunshine that Darby had left to hold on to. The Foreign Secretary could hope that by the time the British fleet did advance up the Straits, the Russians and Turks would be at peace and the former would be in no mood for war, based purely on the fact that they could see a British fleet in the Dardanelles Straits. Darby tried to add extra layers of security to this compromise by assuring the Turks that Britain was not acting with any warlike intent, but he soon ran into a horrifying stumbling block from Shuvalov. Contrary to what the Tsar had recently communicated, Shuvalov now sent Darby the message which indicated that it might become necessary in due course to occupy Constantinople. Darby was furious. As if matters at home weren't bad enough, here now was the Tsar changing his mind and making him look like a fool in the process. But Darby would have calmed down and recognised the varied influences that the Tsar's court was under. Within it existed far more expansionists and warmongers than in Disraelis, and Darby could at least take solace in the fact that Shuvalov continued to converse with him on an amicable basis. So Darby tried a different tactic with the Russian ambassador. In an unusually stormy meeting between the two men, Darby informed Shuvalov that the cabinet was now decided on action because St. Petersburg had made the very unwise decision to keep the terms of the Russo-Turkish peace secret from Britain even while she knew how important these developments were to that country. To this, Shuvalov replied that the stakes had gotten higher and that he was under immense pressure from the Tsar and the Russian commander-in-chief at all times. Shuvalov tried to reconcile Darby by claiming that the Russian occupation of Constantinople was purely for the sake of securing Russian interests and that it would only be temporary. Shuvalov even claimed that the Russians planned to occupy Constantinople for similar reasons the British had used when they had tried to justify the sending of their fleet through the Straits. 
both powers, according to Shuvalov, were acting in the name of maintaining public order there. Darby shot down this argument and found himself suddenly supporting Disraeli's line when he stated that there was no parallel between the two empires' policies. Darby went one better as well. He reasoned that he could not answer for the consequences should Russia go ahead with their plans. He also warned Shuvalov not to threaten the communications of the English fleet by occupying the Turkish capital or any point along the Gallipoli Peninsula, the latter of which British strategists had theorised the Russians would opt for as a plan B. What can we make of Darby's tough new line? Perhaps he had lost so much faith in Disraeli's ability to act responsibly that he believed threatening the Russians would produce more tangible results? He certainly knew that Shuvalov would communicate his warnings to St. Petersburg within moments, as he had always done. Shuvalov knew full well the pressures Darby was under, and in many ways the two men were cut from the same cloth. Neither particularly wanted war to erupt between each other's nations, yet both had to rally constantly against the pro-war camps at home. Shuvalov certainly had a grasp on how difficult Darby's position was becoming. On Valentine's Day 1878, the Russian ambassador communicated to Russian Chancellor Gorchakov that the London clubs were signing petitions for Darby's removal and that they cried loudly that if England's humiliation should last a few days longer, they would hang Lord Darby on the first tree of Hyde Park. With a measure of sympathy, Shuvalov noted that at great crises, nations need victims, and that in this case, Darby had been cast in that role. Yet, Valentine's Day showed even less love to Darby in Cabinet, where he was confronted with another incredible idea. This time, the planned Israeli bandied about regarded Britain occupying an island or a watery base in the Ottoman Empire, or at least close to it. If we could combine it with the presence of an English fleet in the Bosphorus and a British army corps at Gallipoli, Disraeli claimed, then Britain could maintain the Turkish Empire as an independent and vigorous power. To Darby's immense dismay, his colleagues seemed seized with the idea, even though it was completely anathema to the idea of conservative statesmanship. Darby made his opposition known amidst a sea of expansionist enthusiasm, and wandered to the Foreign Office after the meeting, feeling ill-pleased and despondent. Now at his lowest ebb, and rendered despondent from the incredible viewpoints displayed in the cabinet, Darby must have wondered if he had gone completely mad. In fact, it seemed he was the only one at this stage who seemed able to keep his head. Across the breadth of the Russian Empire, orders were being received to occupy Constantinople, and these were read with jubilation across the realm, as the Russian national destiny seemed finally at hand. The Tsar had taken the repeated attempts of the British to enter the Dardanelles Straits as a personal insult, not to mention a violation of international law. The Russian commander-in-chief was told to arrange for a Russian entry into Constantinople in the name of protecting the Christian population there. If the Turks resisted such a move, then the Tsar claimed, We must be prepared to occupy Constantinople by force. With the warnings of Lord Darby in the back of his mind, Chancellor Gorchakov persuaded the Tsar to make a Russian occupation of Constantinople contingent upon a British landing at Gallipoli. Darby's lingering influence may save the peace yet. Thus, on the 10th of February, the Tsar had sent two telegrams to his commanders-in-chief, the first demanding an occupation of Constantinople, the second modified by the claim that such an occupation would only take place if the British acted on Gallipoli. 
Adding to the confusion, on the 14th of February, the Commander-in-Chief actually received the second telegram first, and since the telegrams were received in the wrong order, he did what any sensible commander would do and asked for clarification from the Tsar. Constantinople had been momentarily saved, it seemed, by the lousy communication system that the Russians were at the mercy of. With the mess of Russian communications unknown at this stage to Derby, he took part in a cabinet meeting on the 15th of February which sought to develop a warning to the Russians. In the meantime, Derby helped negotiate a slight withdrawal from Constantinople, by reasoning that it would reduce tensions for the moment, and that the fleet could return if it wished to stalk the Ottoman capital at a moment's notice if it had to. Derby wanted the return of the British fleet to be contingent upon a Russian occupation of either Constantinople or Gallipoli and in the process he had created an unintentional impasse, where, for a few days, owing to the communication problems of the Russians and the opposition of Derby, both Russia and Britain were waiting for the other to push the situation over the edge, and wouldn't act until the other power acted. Britain wouldn't send its fleet back to stalk Constantinople unless the Russians occupied it or Gallipoli, and the Russians wouldn't occupy it or Gallipoli unless the British returned to threaten Constantinople with their fleet. It was a strange standoff, but it was also something of a godsend to Derby, who was now joined in his opposition to war by, ironically enough, the Minister for War and the First Lord of the Admiralty. Salisbury continued to strike a definite pro-war pose, or at least argue for a stiff line to be taken against the Russians. With the impasse in place, Derby added to the weight by warning Shuvalov on the 16th of February that Austria would join Britain's side if Constantinople were occupied by the Russians. Shuvalov passed this straight on to the Russian Chancellor, who himself was surely puzzled as to why the Russian war apparatus seemed to have ground to a halt by that stage. The warning struck the Russian court like a bomb and set off a series of bitter telegrams that went all the way to Berlin, forcing Otto von Bismarck to take notice. Darby, it seemed, was far more influential than his colleagues had accounted for. He was well aware of the continuing negotiations Disraeli held with Vienna, and though he had disproved of offensive deals with Count Andrasee that Disraeli had tried to make use of in the past, Darby thoroughly approved of using the Austrian element to deter the Russians. Darby knew full well that Vienna would not stand for a Russian occupation of Constantinople any more than Britain would. He needed Shuvalov to know this, and Gorchakov needed to let the Tsar know by proxy. It was not the case that Darby was being indiscreet or overtly daring by warning Shuvalov of the consequences of Russian action. The Russians had... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Gone too far, and if they advanced any further, it was relatively certain that most of Europe would be against her. A Russian withdrawal or war with most of Europe would result from a Russian occupation of the sensitive Bosphorus region. There was no point sugarcoating this truth, and in Darby's mind, the bluntness could serve as the stark reality check that the Russian court so badly needed. For his part, Ambassador Shuvalov claimed to Gorchakov on the 17th of February that Lord Darby's attitude and the personal reproach on which has come about between him and me in these last grave circumstances are the sole means of which I dispose. Even Shuvalov understood the importance of the relationship that the foreign secretary and Russian ambassador held to peace. Without it, Russia and Britain may well have stumbled to war months before. That same day, a critical development occurred in the history of the Russo-Turkish War. Darby sent out a circular telegram to all British officials serving abroad, informing them that the assembling of the conference of the concerned powers seemed the only way to escape the present political complications, and that this solution should again be pressed on Russia. Thus, the conference idea was circulated again, two weeks before it had drawn interest and some agreement from the interested European powers, but events had overtaken its efforts since. Now Darby was determined to try it again and present the desire for a conference as the preferred British policy. By doing this, he sought to overtake his colleagues in cabinet, who continued to theorise about the need to prepare for a war or occupy an island in the Mediterranean, as well as make it plain to the Russians, who were getting back on track after their communication lapses of the days before, that the best opportunity to gain what they wanted was still through diplomacy. In the Reichstag, some way away from the calamities of the Russian and British governments, Bismarck was making his famous speech on the 19th of February that Germany's role would be that of an honest broker who really wants to do business. Darby, for his part, didn't believe in Bismarck's assurances and continued to claim that Bismarck would surely welcome an Anglo-Russian war. But Bismarck had matured in his wishes for the international system since his disinterested perspective had first been made known to Darby a few years before where he had once sought to bargain a partition of the Turkish Empire which would make everyone happy, Bismarck now understood that a Russian occupation of Constantinople would create an Anglo-Austrian arrangement which would break apart the Reichheiserbund and increase French power, perhaps even leading to a war of revenge on the part of the latter. In this way did Bismarck reason that a chair European conference would be in Germany's interest. When the British cabinet met on the 19th of February to discuss what Bismarck had said, Darby immediately ruled himself out of going to attend. As ministers begrudgingly noted their individual satisfaction with the current fragile stalemate in the Dardanelles, which centred on Russia not sending troops to Gallipoli or Constantinople if the British didn't send their fleet, 
the debate became one of who would attend Bismarck's latest creation, to take place in Berlin at an unspecified time. But Darby would have been a fool if he had expected events to run smoothly towards a conference. Dissatisfied with the stalemate that had been engendered and eager to demonstrate Russian power, Shuvalov let Darby know on the 20th of February that St. Petersburg was now demanding that the Turkish fleet cease operations and surrender itself to Russia, and that 30,000 troops had been sent to occupy Constantinople. Despite this terrifying news, though, when the cabinet met to discuss the emergency the next day, no new developments were reported. Darby wondered if Shuvalov had made a mistake, but it did not prevent furious debate within the cabinet over what was to be done. Because of previous agreements, no preemptive landing or attack could be made near Constantinople or Gallipoli, and so Darby argued for a harsh message to be sent to the Russians instead. In the event that Russian troops occupied Constantinople without Turkish consent, Britain would withdraw her ambassador from St. Petersburg and advance her fleet on Constantinople. Furthermore, any ideas of a conference would be boycotted by Britain for the duration that the Russian occupation lasted. This went much further than Darby had ever gone before, but to the beleaguered foreign secretary it was the best he could do under the circumstances. It at least stopped short of a declaration of war, and was contingent upon the Sultan's opposition to the occupation, which would help justify British action when it almost certainly came, since who wants their capital to be occupied by their worst enemy? Somehow, Darby's cautious diplomacy had triumphed again, yet he now found himself a victim of further character assassination from the pro-war press. Though the reasons for maintaining the peace of the realm were perfectly sound, Darby's arguments were easily painted in a negative light, and now that Russian blood could not be found to satiate the Jingo public's mood, Darby's reputation and career were settled on as justifiable prizes instead. As he dealt with the smearing of his life's work, Darby also had to make his opposition felt yet again to the old chestnut of gaining an island base for British operations. I could not well make out what the island is wanted for, Darby confided in his diary, or what the possession of it is to do for us, still less what we are supposed to have there. Then came the news from the British ambassador in Constantinople that the Russians and Ottomans were coming around to signing a peace treaty at a place called San Stefano. At this stage, Darby could at least take solace from the fact that the Turkish fleet remained in Turkish hands, and that most of all, Constantinople remained unoccupied despite the stark Russian claims of a few days before. Perhaps the peace of Europe could after all be maintained. In the House of Lords on the 25th of February, Darby made known his position when challenged by one of his colleagues to pass a resolution which would ratchet up the tension between Russia and Britain. It was a resolution similar to others opposed by Darby and the anti-war camp in the past, on the grounds that it would do more harm than good. As usual, it revolved around the question of sending the fleet up the straits. Regarding the presentation of this resolution to the House of Lords, as well as a number of unsavoury opinions on the Foreign Secretary's character and personality, Darby responded to defend himself. I hardly know whether to notice the elaborate attack the noble lord has made upon me personally. I understood on the whole from the noble lord's remarks that, in his opinion, the eastern question will never be satisfactorily settled until something very disagreeable happens to me. Whatever may happen to me, the eastern question will, I am afraid, take a great deal of both time and labour to settle. But of one thing I think your lordships may feel certain, 
that it will not be settled by any mere outpouring of confused rhetoric and pompous platitudes. The noble lord seems to think that I object to any parliamentary action in regard to foreign affairs, even when taken in support of the policy which I myself advocate. I need hardly vindicate myself against such a charge, which, if it were justified, would not imply merely folly, but absurdity on my part. It is true, however, that during the last two or three years I have more than once deprecated the discussion of resolutions proposed by the noble lord. I have done so on the ground that those resolutions would have no particular use or advantage if carried, and that if they did not represent the unanimous sense of the House, they would only have the effect of showing disunion, while the aim was to show that we were united. Speaking more directly on the course of British neutrality and the reasons for staying on the sidelines, Darby noted that three options existed for British policymakers, and that criticisms of such a policy, while they were to be expected, must not be made without consideration of the circumstances in which the government found itself. Darby continued, We had three courses open to us at the beginning. We might, as some few persons proposed, have so far sided with Russia as to join our action with hers and prevented her acting in an isolated manner. That proposition was supported by so small a minority of persons that I do not think I need further refer to it. There were the other two alternatives open to us either to remain neutral or to do as we did at the time of the Crimean War and to have announced our intention to maintain the treaties of 1856 and 71 and support that determination by war. Those proposals were fairly put before the country and government and a great majority of the English people deliberately determined that, under the altered circumstances of the time, an adherence to the policy which led to the Crimean War was no longer desirable. When we took the determination to remain neutral, every reflecting person knew what it involved. We knew that Russia was the more powerful of the two combatants. We knew that, sooner or later, whatever resistance might be made by Turkey, that resistance must be overpowered, and that a state of things would be brought about very different from what had existed before. I can quite understand that many people who a year ago felt nothing so strongly as the undesirableness of engaging in war are now of a different opinion, because they did not then fully contemplate the results of a policy of neutrality. But I say with respect that before any charges of vacillation, hesitation, or want of firmness are brought against us, we ought to know upon what fact, upon what act or absence of action, these charges are founded. We defined our conditions of neutrality at the beginning of the war. We have adhered to those conditions so defined, and no one either inside or out of this house has attempted to show that we have departed from the line we then laid down. I think, then, that it has shown it will be time enough to charge us with weakness, vacillation, or inconsistency. But I say it is not fair to complain of those who have had to administer the affairs of the country, because a state of things has occurred which is the natural, the necessary, and the inevitable result of that policy, which the government, supported by the nation, deliberately adopted 12 months ago. This was almost certainly a bold classification to make, because events around Britain were beginning to outpace the capabilities of Disraeli's administration. More specifically, some citizens within Britain were becoming outraged at their perceived weakness of the government to stand up to Russia. Windows had been smashed at Gladstone's house in protest of that liberal giant's pacifist line. Though Disraeli would have surely gleefully relished in the destruction of his hated rival's property, He understood at the same time that rioting across the land had gotten out of control, 
and that the moment had definitively come to remove the last obstacle to the execution of such a strong, belligerent policy, which the people evidently wanted. The long-teased final break between Disraeli and Darby seemed finally to be at hand. In late February 1878, Darby began to notice his own increased isolation amongst his own colleagues. Disraeli's attempts to remould what it meant to be a conservative statesman had collided with Darby's sense of traditional Tory principles on numerous occasions, but weeks of bad press and scandalous rumour had meant that Darby was now more marginalised than ever before. It also meant that his loss would not so cripple and concern the party as it had once done in late January, back when Disraeli's hurried attempts to launch preemptive action in the Dardanelles had forced Darby's resignation amidst a hail of confusion. Though Darby noted with confidence on the 27th of February in his diary that there was no difference of opinion so far as the present action is concerned between my colleagues and myself. He had in fact already been outflanked. That same day in Cabinet the idea came up of occupying an island for the sake of British interests once again, and once again Darby voiced his disapproval. He drafted a telegram to the British ambassador in Russia, outlining both his and Shuvalov's objections to the scheme. To Darby, the physical act of seizing an island in the name of British interests would absolve the Russians of their pledges to not occupy Constantinople and Gallipoli, since St. Petersburg would likely see the British act as a signal that all bets were off and that the scramble was on. Despite the fact that Shuvalov himself had noted that this would be the result of such an action, Darby found himself mostly alone where this view of events was concerned and when Northcote and a few other ministers, as well as the Duke of Cambridge, perused the draft of this telegram over dinner at the latter's residence, all our eight heads of hair stood upright, in Northcote's words, since Darby had not expressed the policy of the government in this draft to the British ambassador in Russia. At this, Darby replied to Northcote that if such documents were poured over, at dinners where necessarily others besides our colleagues are present, it is easy to understand how so little of what we do or say is left secret. To Darby it simply made sense that the Russians would see the occupation of a random island by British forces as an excuse to respond in kind with force. To Darby such a Russian conclusion would not at all be unreasonable. And this, a Minister of State, wrote to the British ambassador in Constantinople that there was a very strong feeling against Lord Darby who was denounced on his own side as a traitor He will be thrown overboard by his own colleagues if he gives them the chance. When Lord Chancellor Cairns complained that, I own I cannot feel comfortable in appearing in the present crisis to be sending the Russians a civil message, a reference to the fact that Darby had drawn up another telegram which inquired about the peace terms signed between Russia and Turkey at San Stefano, Darby was less than impressed. With a heavy dose of sarcasm, Darby commented that he didn't know It was the desire of the cabinet to shape their inquiry so as to bring about a refusal to answer it, nor does this seem to me to be good diplomacy. Darby was sending a civil message to the Russians, because that was what diplomatists did, not because he was a weak-willed man unable to take a strong stand. If other ministers wished to send a rude or belligerent message which went against the traditions of diplomacy, then they could go ahead and see for themselves what fruit it bore. On the 2nd of March, once again... Darby was faced with the issue of island seizing. 
Once again, Darby made his opposition clear on the grounds that it would give Russia and the other nations an excuse to follow Britain's example, particularly if the Turks refused to surrender an island to the British, meaning that Britain would be breaking international law if she acted. By now, Darby had come to suspect that the irritating regularity which the island question seemed to surface with had much to do with Disraeli's ulterior motives, that the Prime Minister perhaps wished the international order of things to break down, and for Russia to overstep her boundaries, which would then give the British Empire an excuse to strike back. In such a way, Darby surmised, this would bring about a collision in such a way that most of the blame could be thrown on Russia, not to mention that it would cause the plan of the conference to be knocked on the head. Cabinet nonetheless authorised a study of the island-seizing idea, and Darby claimed in the process that he had laid the ground for my resignation, the second in as many months. On the 4th of March, news of the Treaty of San Stefano came through, and it caused uproar. Turkey would be deprived of vast tracts of her realm, a large Bulgaria would be created with a Mediterranean coastline, and the Turks would pay a vast war indemnity. The terms of the treaty were apparently final, and the Tsar had responded to the threats that the British ambassador would be recalled, a threat issued earlier in the month of February, by scoffing that, England can do as she pleases. These were the actions of the boogeyman Russia, which Disraeli had so warned, and which Darby had tried so hard to preempt with diplomacy. Part of the problem had to do with the act of sending the British fleet up the Straits. The Tsar continuously felt deeply insulted by this interfering act, and sought to escalate the situation now that the bluff had been called. The press was able to frame the treaty in the worst possible light, as well as deride Darby for not having seen it all coming or being strong enough to prevent it either way. In his subsequent cabinet meetings over the next fortnight, Darby found himself increasingly isolated amidst an atmosphere of tension and defiance, built up by aghast colleagues and belligerent newspapers. Darby reasoned in the House of Lords on the 14th of March that the terms of the 1856 Treaty of Paris, which had brought the Crimean War to an end, did entail British obligations to Turkey, but that these obligations did not extend to making war on Turkey's behalf. Neither Disraeli nor Salisbury were impressed with such language, and both were becoming increasingly eager for action, lest the moment pass. Both the Prime Minister and his now-allied Secretary for India plotted a new strategy, deception, which would escalate the tensions between Russia and Britain even further, and prove to be the first in a few short steps towards the resignation of Lord Derby as British Foreign Secretary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.